Now, you know my titles change from time to time, and I, I, I changed this one this morning to Samson's Silver Spoon. That may not be perfect, but I'm sure you're wondering a little bit why I would pick that title. Generally, when we say somebody's been born with a silver spoon in their mouth, we mean that they've been given all of the advantages that life has to offer. They've got a sort of a leg up on life, and they, they have advantages that may not be uh, there for other people. And it seems to me that in uh, Judges chapter 13, that is what we are looking at. Uh, it is, I think, a, a, a very fascinating chapter. In many ways, when you read these verses, it has a sort of a deja vu feel to it, and we'll talk about that uh, in a minute. But... Uh, it is interesting to go into this amount of detail. No one else in the book of Judges has this much detail regarding their origins or their calling or their gifting. One whole chapter devoted to, uh, to uh, Samson and, and to his family. And I think we ought to take note of that. We ought to take note also of the fact that Samson is the last judge in the book of Judges, not necessarily the last book, uh, the last judge, period, because um, uh, some would see Samuel in that role later on. But he is the last judge in the book of Judges, and so you might say he's our last chance. And uh, this chapter gives us a sort of a, an exciting introduction, and you think this is the this is the beginning of great things to come. But you, you, you do see a kind of a familiar theme going through the story. Here's an angelic messenger that comes not once, but twice, to announce the birth of, of this child. And he does so to a mother who is without child. Now, that is not unfamiliar to us in the scriptures either. But he speaks to a woman who is barren about the birth of the son that is going to come. And we know that that birth then, in that sense, is a miraculous birth since the description of the mother is that she is unable to bear children. And I'm going to say that we come to a chapter that portrays godly parents. Now, I'm a little disappointed with some of my brothers in this regard, not here in this church, but there's a sense in which some people anticipate the failures that are going to come in the next chapters and so they sort of brace up for them here and and they look at at Manoah in particular and his wife to some degree as less than what they ought to be as parents I just don't see it that way I mean when you think about the day and time in which Manoah and his wife lived these are godly people and they have every intention of raising their child in the right way. So that's the way that I read the story. And my last word of exhortation to you is, as you read chapter 13 as a, and as you study it, do so, if you can, and I know that's difficult, but do so setting aside what you already know about chapters 14 and 15 and 16. Set that aside and read this as though you were reading it for the first time, because it seems to me that you would come away from this with a very upbeat, expectant uh, note in what's taking place, and you're sort of saying to yourself, this is really going to be good. Uh, that's what chapter 13 does, at least for me. 
Now, I don't think we can understand this chapter unless, and even the whole life of Samson unless we know something about the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow, you remember, is described for us in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. And there are several elements of that that are especially pertinent. But notice it is a voluntary vow. This is not something that is compulsory, but rather it is a vow that someone would take on a voluntary basis, man or woman. And it is a temporary vow. That is, as this thing is described in Numbers chapter 6, it is described as a vow that takes place for a period of time. And then after that period of time, that vow is completed and that time ends. And that's when the, the hair cutting ceremony takes place is at the end of, of that uh, vow. Uh, that would be the way it would normally be done. There is the restriction, this is really strange, of all grape products. He doesn't just say, God doesn't just say no alcohol, although that's clearly there. There is no wine, no grape juice, no grape uh, skins. I mean, anything that has to do with, with the grape is out, period. Now, I don't know whether that's because some desperate soul is going to try and wring out something from the skins of those grapes or whatever. But, but he's supposed to stay away from that. Primarily, I, I would assume it's the alcoholic uh, element that is involved, but not perhaps altogether. All the elements of grape products are prohibited. No contact with the dead in the Nazarite vow. No contact with the dead. If there is contact with the dead, then of course you're defiled. And, and uh, if perchance, as Numbers spells it out, the person who is in the Nazarite has a Nazarite vow and is, and is working out the time of their vow, if they come in contact with someone who dies or is dead, they have to go through a cleansing ceremony and they get to start all over. Now that could be a rather frustrating thing for a guy to keep starting and stopping, but you got to complete your vow. And if you're defiled, then you have to start over from go and, uh, and begin again. And no haircut while the vow period uh, is in existence. That's the Nazarite vow, and that's going to be the backdrop for what God is going to say to Manoah's wife, and of course, which will apply to Israel. Now, let's look at Israel's uh, spiritual condition there in, in chapter 13 and verse 1. You remember back from chapter 10 uh, that Israel was not in, in a good spiritual state, as it's described in verses 6 and 7. But there, the period of affliction is, is said to be 18 years. The period of affliction here is 40 years. But what you see back in chapter 10 is that the apostasy of Israel has grown to where now it is not just one God, Baal, Barith, for example, but it is all, these, all this mixture of the Canaanite gods that are being worshipped. And so when we come to chapter 13 and it says that Israel again did evil in the eyes of the Lord, we can sort of fall back on what we've seen before and say, I have a rough idea of what that means. And then God gives them over, it says, into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. That's what's said. Now, now we also need to look at what isn't said. And, and, and this is an argument from Silas, so you have to be a little careful. 
It isn't said that they were terribly oppressed. Now, it's said before. It's not said here. It is not said that they cry out, whether that cry is a cry for repentance or whether it is merely a cry for help. It is not said in this text that Israel cries out. It is said that God is going to send them. It's obvious that God is going to send them a deliverer. But it is not apparent that that deliverer comes because Israel has cried out for them. So why would that be the case? Here's my my suggestion. may not be true, but it looks this way to me. It looks to me as though Israel has become used to captivity and comfortable with it. Isn't that a terrible thing? They've actually become accustomed to the loss of their liberties. Now, why would I say that? Well, here's some suggestions. By the way, I I finally got to my alliterating mode, and so I call this A, protection, rather than security. Protection. If they were under the Philistine rule, then it is up to the Philistines to take care of them. Is it not? That's part of the package. They are a protectorate, as it were, because of Philistine interest. So there is a measure of security in that. Then there's pluralism. In in this environment, one has the option to, to worship whichever god you want. There's not the restrictive, confining thing about the one God of Israel, about following his law and his covenant. You can pick and choose whatever God you like. Uh, that would be available within the Philistine environment. Third thing I call pleasure. All of the Canaanite pagan religions were based upon sensuality. They were they were they were an exercise in sensuality, and that was their benefit, if you want to put it in those terms. Going to church was fun in in a perverted sort of sense for for the Canaanites, for the Philistines. And so you have these three elements that I think come together, and for a nation that is not spiritually in tune with God, who is not jealous for for the honor and the glory of God, They've gotten to the point where it isn't that bad. And so, all right, I'm going to politicize a little bit and say, does this sound familiar to you? Now, think about what happened in the Middle East where, where, or, or, or in the USSR, where, where people got freedom, quote unquote. They got their liberty, and we assumed that with that liberty, they'd be happy as clams and they'd just love democracy. But what happened is they lost their security. They lost the benefits of that totalitarian system. Is it any wonder that people in those places are now speaking about the good old days, the days of their captivity? And I'm telling you, in America, I think it's coming to that as well. I think Americans are are ready and willing to surrender their constitutional liberties for what they think they will get in exchange. And it's a frightening picture. So all I'm saying is, you read it for what you want, but I see Israel not in distress at this point, and I see God acting not because people are crying out, but because God has made his covenant promises to Israel, and God is going to fulfill them, so that God comes to their help even when they don't want it. That's the way I read 
this particular uh, text. So let's look then at the first angelic visitation. This isn't bad. Two angelic visitations, I'd say that's, you know, that's right up there on the charts for me in terms of what someone would find to be a blessing. In verse 2, Manoah is introduced to us. He is a Danite, um, and, and uh, he has a wife who, it is said, is uh, childless, who has remained uh, childless. There is, so far as I see in the text, there is no plea for a child. Now think about the the situations in in the scriptures where there is a childless woman. Generally speaking, it would be the woman who would pray and would ask for a child. Remember, that's going to be the case in, in 1 Samuel, where Samuel's mother pleads with God for a child, and God's going to answer that. And, or it may be the pleas of the husband. But in this instance, there is a childless woman, and so far as the text tells us, she is not crying out to God for remedy for her, uh, for her uh, situation, and yet God comes to her rescue and announces it through the angel. Her barrenness will be reversed, and she will bear a son, the angel says. Uh, and then he describes the conditions on which all of this is to take place. And now he comes to the, to the uh, Nazarite vow. But what he does is he doesn't just impose the Nazarite vow on Samson, the child who is to be. The Nazarite vow begins with his mother during that period of time that will constitute her pregnancy. So she is the mother shares with Samson this Nazarite vow which will then go on for Samson's lifetime. It is not a temporary thing. It is, the, it is a permanent condition. And therefore, the angel says, she is to drink no wine or alcohol, to eat nothing unclean, and the hair is to remain uncut. Interesting, there is no mention of not coming in contact with the dead. Don't you think? I mean, that was one of the big ones. <laughs> Man, you find Samson, folks, you find a pile of corpses. Isn't that right? You might as well just name the cemetery, Samson Cemetery. This guy is a killing machine. I'm not saying the Nazarite vow doesn't apply. I'm saying the angel didn't mention that, and probably that wasn't a bad idea. So there are the, there are the conditions that are set down. And notice it says the boy is to be a Nazarite from his birth, as long as he lives, And he will begin to deliver Israel. Now, I think that's significant. Because what it says to us is, Samson is not the ultimate deliverer. Samson is only the starter on this deliverance run. He begins it, but all of their hopes are not pinned upon this one guy. From that point, she has been alone. Mrs. Manoah, I call her, because we don't know her name. She's never, she's never named in the text. Mrs. Manoah goes to her husband and reports what she has seen and heard. She first describes the awesomeness of this being. She knows that that creature is not a mere mortal. She, she knows that that creature is angelic. She does not know, and they will not know until the end of our text, this is the angel of the Lord. They are literally looking at God himself in the person of our Lord. And uh, yet she does not know that. But she says, he is awesome, 
And she says, uh, he's also mysterious. I didn't get his name, and I didn't get his place of origin. Which, when you're talking to a stranger, those are good things to know. But I, I say this, and I hope you can take it in the sense it's meant. This is the first instance of biblical don't ask, don't tell. Uh, because she's saying, I don't want to go there with this guy. I don't know who he is. I, I don't want to press that. He's obviously in charge, and so she is playing this out. But what she is saying is, whatever's going on here, this is really significant. And, of course, Manoah was not there uh, to, to behold that. So she, she then says, here's what the angel promised. He promised that I'm going to have a son. And then she goes through the instructions that the angel has given pertaining to the way in which uh, that son is to live under the Nazarite vow. Now, let me just uh, let me just make my observations here. Mrs. Manoa is never named. I don't. I can't explain that any more than I can explain why the lady with the millstone uh, that drops it on Abimelech's head why she isn't named. In, in my opinion. I would be putting those gals' names in, in bronze plaques. But, and, and I think you have to say from our text, it seems to me from what you do read that she has greater spiritual maturity than her husband. Now, I'm not saying that he is not spiritual, but her husband is saying, we're dead. We're dead. And, and, and contrary to whatever anybody may say about women, He's the emotional one, and she's the rational one that says, you ought to think about this, hubby. I mean, we got our sacrifice accepted. If he was going to kill us, it'd have been done by now, wouldn't it? That's logic, folks, and she wins the day. Anyway, so here's Mrs. Manoa, never, never named. Samson's Nazarite status is not voluntary. Get that? In, in the number six text, it is always something the individual chooses. It is not chosen by Samson. And we, could we not venture to say, nor would it ever be. Would it? Samson taking the Nazarite vow? Here is Mr. Wine, Women, and Song, folks. I don't think he's going to be standing in that line for the Nazarite vow. It's not voluntary, and it's not temporary. See, it would be one thing to take a Nazarite vow and to say, I'm going to do this for a week, two weeks, or a month, or whatever period of time it is. This guy gets to live under the Nazarite vow all the rest of his life because God has decreed and determined it that way. Mrs. Manoa needs to participate in that. And here's the one that's interesting. While Contact with the dead is not mentioned, and that's clearly mentioned in Numbers chapter 6. What is mentioned is unclean food. Unclean food. Now, why, did, why should that get our attention? Because unclean food was not a special prohibition for Nazarites. Unclean food was a prohibition for every Israelite. What does that tell you about the spiritual state of Israel? If she is to, in a sense, and her son are to act in a way that is unique and sets them apart from the sins of Israel, 
then not eating unclean food is one of the things that sets them apart. That tells me Israelites were eating unclean food. That was a part of their apostasy. And by the way, remember, eat, drink, and be merry is a part of the heathen worship scenario. And so eating at the pagan table, altar, was a part of that worship. They are eating unclean food, but God says that she must not. And again, the messenger is recognized at this moment as angelic, not as the angel of the Lord. Now comes the second angelic uh, vision. Manoah, hearing these things, prays to the Lord and asks that the man of God who has been sent would come again and teach us, teach both of them, how it is that they are bringing up the boy that's, that's going to be born. Now, to me, that's, that's, a, that's a real evidence of faith. I give him a gold star on this count. He does not say, as we have seen in the past, or he does not laugh, as we have seen in the past, you know, a real knee slapper. Yeah, right, we're going to have a boy. Ha, ah, ah, ha, big joke. He does not say, as Zacharias does, how in the world is this going to happen? He assumes that what the angel of God has promised is going to happen. So the question he's asking is predicated on faith that what has been said will be fulfilled. You don't ask how to raise a boy if you aren't going to have one. You ask how to raise a boy when you know you're going to have one and you wonder how it is to be done. And especially if they've gotten along in years at all. That's something all of us parents, when we started having kids, we said to ourselves, how do you do this? And so he wants to know, and he makes that request. The angel hears that prayer and answers it, but he does so by coming to the woman again. This unnamed woman, Manoah's wife, Mrs. Manoah, she's out, and, and the angel comes and appears to her, and she says to him, in effect, could you hold it for just one minute? I really need to get my husband, because he wants to hear what you've got to say. So she brings her husband, and, and uh, he has a couple of questions. The first one is, are you the one who's been talking to my wife? And, and, uh, and, and uh, he says, I'm the one. I'm the one that she saw before. I'm, I'm the guy. Then he says, then what is the boy's mode of life to be? He's trying to figure out, with this Nazarite vow, this spells out something very special about this boy. He obviously has a unique calling, and so what he's saying is, what exactly is that calling? And what do we do to prepare him for that? Right? And the answer is, evasive. Evasive. Why? See, what the angel says to her is, now, here's, or says to Manoah, in effect, here are the things your wife needs to do. That wasn't the question. <laughs> They'd already heard that part. The question was, what is this boy's life going to be, and what do we do to prepare him for it? Why does the angel duck that? Well, it seems to me that, A, you have the ideal Samson, right? The ideal Samson is the Samson whose heart is for God, He's, in effect, a David. And, and when he sees Goliath cursing his God, he is the one who says, I'm going to confront that guy in the name of the Lord. I'm taking him out. 
It's his zeal for God that does that. Ideally, that would have been Samson. But the reality is, Samson is a man of the flesh. He's the incredible Hulk who keeps getting mad. And because he has been angered and offended, he blows his stack and kills hordes of people. That's what he does. Well, what are you going to say? What's the angel going to say if he tells them how it's going to come out? It isn't that he didn't know. He could tell them, here's how it should come out, but that isn't going to happen. So what's he going to say? Well, turn him loose out there in the farm and let him kill all the animals he can get. and He'll get practice for this. You don't say. So he just avoids that because what's going to happen is not certainly not the ideal. Then he asks him, um, could you stay for dinner? <laughs> Which is not unfamiliar to us, is it? We see that with Abraham and the, and the three uh, messengers that come, and he invites them to stay and to partake or of Gideon uh, as he wants to offer the sacrifice. And, and, uh, and so the angel declines to eat dinner, but he does say, if you want to offer a sacrifice, then, then I'll be glad to be a part and, and a party of that. And then he says to him, what is your name? What is your name? Now, that's not really an unrealistic question, is it? I mean, you're saying, you know, his wife has come and she said, there's this angel. He hasn't told me what his name is and, and uh, or he hasn't said where he's from. And there's this nagging question. Just who are you? Who are you? Where are you from? What's your name? Uh, I don't think that's manipulative. I think that's something all of us would like to know. <laughs> and we would have wanted to know the same thing. But... That is not told him other than it's saying, in effect, it is so amazing, it is so undescribable that you wouldn't be able to fathom it. It's bigger than, than you would imagine. Then we come to the amazing sacrifice that's offered. Here is the sacrifice of the goat on the rock. And, and, uh, and while this thing, the, the, the smoke is, is ascending up from that sacrifice, can you imagine what it was like to see that the angel of the Lord just, just ascend in that smoke up into the heaven? And it's obvious they're standing there waiting for him to come back, you know. When, when's this going to come back? And when he doesn't come back, that's when the light comes on and they say, Oh my goodness, this was the angel of the Lord. We have seen God. Manoah wasn't wrong when he said we should die. Was he? No one could look upon God and live was, was the rule. And, and so uh, his wife though, says to him, well, let's think about this for a minute. He accepted the sacrifice and he's allowed us to live. We are alive. So for whatever reason, the angel of the Lord has chosen to manifest himself to us and yet to allow us to live. Then you come to the birth and the growth of Samson as it's described in those last uh, two verses of the chapter. She gives birth to the boy. She names him Samson and he grew and the Lord blessed him. And verse 25, I guess, is the most puzzling verse to me. Because it says, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahana, Dan between Zorah and Eshtal. What do you think those stirrings look like? 
I, man, I looked up the word and I'm trying to go, you know, find there's got to be some wonderful revelation here that I've just passed over and that somewhere it's going to see. I don't, I don't find the answer to that question. I cannot imagine, I cannot imagine in those stirrings that it means that, that, that every now and then he had the impulse to kill something. But, but, my friends, when the Spirit of God comes upon Samson after this, I mean in his adulthood, what's going to happen every time? People are going to get hurt. People are going to get hurt. That's what happened. Now, I can't see the stirring of the Spirit being that. It seems to me that what the text is saying is that the Spirit of God was working in Samson in terms of what it meant to be a deliverer, about what it meant to serve and to follow God, about what it meant to be a Nazarite. That's the only way I can read that text, is the Spirit of God is working in Samson's life in a way that is to, as it were, woo him or draw him toward God and toward the task that he could have played, the role he could have played within Israel. But it doesn't happen. Now, that's where our text leaves us. And, and uh, there, there's really a logical break. Chapters 14 and 15 I call wedding woes. But, you know, it's where this poor boy keeps trying to find himself a girl. And, man, it does not work. What would this guy have done with eHarmony.com? He would have worn those guys out. But here he is out in 14 and 15 looking for, for Ms. Wright. And, and then, uh, finally, in chapter 16, you see Samson and Delilah and his, his death and the destruction of the temple there and, and those who were gathered in it. But at, up to this point, I think you have to say, what would we have expect, uh, expected to happen next if we only read the text this far and if we didn't read our children's Bible story books about Samson? Boy, what a wimp out. Are they not? You almost ought to rip those pages out. Samson's this wonderful guy. I mean, they really clean him up. That guy could have run for office. He looks so good. You can't tell it the way it is. And from reading this chapter, you would almost believe those stories were true. But history doesn't bear it out. Something is going to happen. So it seems to me that what the author is doing for those who are reading the story is he's building us up and he's saying, look, you got this miraculous birth, like we've had miraculous births before, and like the ultimate miraculous birth that's going to come when the Lord Jesus comes to earth. You've got a miraculous birth, angelic visitation. I mean, doesn't that say to you, something big is coming? When years ago I was speaking at a banquet in uh, the book of Acts, and, and I was building up to my punchline, and there was one lady in that audience sitting way back there, and she was with me. And I build right up to the punchline, and I'm ready to drop the bomb. And this woman from the back goes, oh, yeah, it's like, here it comes. And I'm thinking, you are right, lady, you are right, it's going to come. If we had her here today, you'd hear her in the back. As we got this far, she'd say, oh, it's coming, it's coming, a great 
victory, a great day for Israel. Everything we read in chapter 13 tells us good days are coming. And then we get to chapter 14. And all of this just blows up into a disaster. But I think the chapter was, was there to tell us that all the pieces are in place, humanly speaking, and even in terms of divine provision, for great things to happen. The reality will be something different. Why does God impose the Nazarite vow on a guy who will trample it every day of his life? I mean, don't you, don't you see that? I mean, the wine thing, the grape thing, contact with the unclean thing, the hair thing. This guy can't get anything right that has to do with the Nazarite vow. The answer in my mind is, God is raising the bar. God is setting the standard for what a deliverer ought to be. Would you not agree with me that up to this point, deliverers have not measured up? I mean, deliverers, as I said, were jerks. So if the deliverers of the past in the book of Judges didn't measure up, then rather than lower the bar, that would be what we would do, would we not? Well, if we're going to get a guy, we've got to lower the standard down so low that these guys can finally make it. God raises it so high that nobody can make it. Because the deliverer needs to be this kind of man. The reason why these previous deliverers failed is because they were not men with a heart for God. Is it any surprise to us that when Israel gets her king in David, that they get a king who has a heart for God? See, all the standards were here. All the regulations were here. The problem with Samson was his heart was not with God. He loathed what God delighted in. And it's no wonder, therefore, that that's going to be a disaster in the chapters that follow. What advantage does Samson enjoy? He enjoys the divine calling. He enjoys the benefits of godly parents who desire to raise him up in a way that he should be raised. He has the Spirit of God resting upon him. My goodness. Uh, that's, that's pretty good preparation. But it's going to be a disaster. Why does he fail so badly? No heart for God. What does it teach Israel? One, it teaches Israel that the real deliverer, the ultimate deliverer, has got to be somebody far better than any man they've ever seen. The real deliverer needs to be somebody who meets the reality of what the Nazarite vow is merely a symbol. I'm going to say this about Jesus right now, but Jesus is not a Nazarite. Jesus fulfills, as it were, the picture supernatural birth, angelic visitation. He fulfills those things, but Jesus is not the Nazarite. Who is? John the Baptist. Jesus says, John the Baptist came to you, not eating, not drinking, and you called him a crackpot. And now I come to you eating and drinking, you call me a drunk. I mean, Jesus made wine for the wedding, not water. And, and, and so you, you have to say, Jesus is not a Nazarite. Why? Because he was in his essence what being a Nazarite symbolized. He didn't have to have the symbol. He was the reality. And so he is the fulfillment, I think. And therefore, he is the great and the ultimate deliverer. 
What then does this have to say to us? Well, it points us to Jesus. I don't see any way to read this text, but what you're thinking about Jesus when you read this story. Now, granted, Mary was not an older woman who could not bear a child. She was a younger woman who, because she was single, could not morally bear a child. She was childless in the moral sense of that. But the rest of it fits. Our Lord Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the ultimate deliverer. Here's one. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. That great enigma that we all face. What you see, I believe, is divine provision that is made for Samson. Would you not agree? And that if Samson had chosen to follow God, he would have had the power of God to carry out the task in a way that would have been honoring to God, that would have been glorious rather than embarrassing to us as we read the text. What was it that kept him from doing that? The flesh. The flesh. It's all about the flesh for him. And frankly, friends, all the way through the Bible, that's where it always comes down, isn't it? Why do men fail? Why did David fail? When he had all the gifting, the Spirit of God was upon him, he had power over all of Israel, why did he fail? The flesh. Solomon. All of the wisdom that God gave to him, the nations under his control, First, as, as first Kings chapter 11, why did he fail? The flesh. First Corinthians chapter 10. When God is speaking to the Corinthians and, and talking to them about the failures that is taking place within the church, he points back to Israel's experience in the 40 years in the wilderness and he says to them, your problem is their problem and their problem was the flesh. When people who are in leadership in Christian ministry today fail, Almost invariably, why is it? The flesh. What this text is saying to us is, the flesh will kill you. It'll kill you. And you can't serve that. And the Spirit was there available. Here's the sovereignty of God part. The sovereignty of God part is, even when Samson fails, God's purposes do not what I see from this text is not a marvelous Samson that we talk and look back on as our great mighty hero, our role model, whatever he isn't. But what we see is that God had a purpose, and his purpose was to deliver Israel from the power of the Philistines. And how did he do it? He did it through a man who chose to be disobedient, who chose not to act in the power of the Spirit in, in the positive sense, Although the Spirit came on him, and he was a destroyer, he did not fulfill the role that he could have had, and I guess you would say he should have had, but God's purposes were achieved. Now, I sometimes hear people saying, unless you're a clean, obedient vessel, unless you live as, as God wants, unless you are fully obedient, then God can't use you. Wrong. Wrong. Oh, he can use you. And he will use you. You won't be happy. You will not be happy. This guy's pursuing the flesh all of his life. And I'll tell you, he didn't write a book on how to be happy. He did not. God used him in spite of himself, as he always will, 
So disobedience will not frustrate the purposes of a sovereign God. He's going to achieve his purposes. But sadly, friends, he's going to do it in spite of you, not because of you. And that's a tragic thing for us. For us. God will get by. (laughs) But we are going to pay the price when we fail in that way. Okay. Let me just make a couple of comments on parenting. It seems to me from this text that whenever we see barrenness, we see God's awareness, we see God's compassion, and we see God's purposes. God used barrenness like he used other things. I'm not saying that he always chose to cure it, but it never is outside of God's purview or his purposes when he withholds. And when he, very often in the scriptures, when he deals with barrenness, he puts it there to raise the level of difficulty so that when he does his work, we say, that's a miracle. That's God. Secondly, there's no guarantee of having godly children. I understand what Proverbs 22.6 says, and that is a general uh, statement, and, I, and it certainly affirms the value of child training. But I cannot lay Samson's failures off on his parents. What I see in chapter 13 is parents who are very concerned about having a child who honors God and doing whatever it is that's their role to lead to that. Isn't that true? But the reality is chapter 14 through 16 says he was still a jerk. And if you look through the history of the kings, I've said this before, godly kings can have ungodly children. Ungodly kings can have godly children. There is no mechanical principle whereby if you do the right thing as a parent, God is obliged and required to produce the kind of kids that you and I would like to see. I'm not saying that's an excuse for being sloppy parents. It isn't. But if we believe in a sovereign God, then we cannot say that we somehow have the hand of God in our hand and we may direct exactly how it comes out, even in the lives of our children. We can be assured of this. God is sovereign His purposes will always be achieved to his glory and ultimately to our good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Samson's parents. Thank you for the story. And and it certainly looked as though things were going to go well. And they surely did not. Help us to be as eager as they were to train our children in a way that we should Help us also to be firmly convinced that while it is important for us to obey and to do as you have said, that it is not our obedience that determines the success of your purposes and promises. It is your sovereign control. Thank you that when Israel was complacent in their unbelief and disobedience, you were not, and that you came to their aid when they were not crying. Help us, Father, to cry out to you for the deliverance that we need in these difficult and dark days. In Jesus' name, amen.